If you'll turn to Galatians chapter 3 this morning for our text that we'll be looking at, uh, Galatians chapter number 3. And also, if you do have a copy of the Confession of Faith, we're going to be again in chapter 21 dealing with of Christian liberty and the liberty of conscience. Uh, you'll recall last week we began looking at this particular chapter in the Confession, and uh, we dealt with a couple of subjects last week about the binding of the conscience, uh, also talking about Christian liberty. Uh, primarily for the next couple of weeks, uh, we'll be dealing primarily with what Christian liberty, what is Christian liberty, uh, why does it matter, uh, what is the importance of it, especially in the life of a believer. But if you would, first of all, go with me to Galatians 3, and I want to read through this text because it does uh, go right along with this subject this morning of Christian liberty. Galatians chapter 3, beginning there in verse number 1, the Apostle Paul, writing under the inspiration of the Spirit, penned these words, O foolish Galatians, who hath bewitched you that ye should not obey the truth? before whose eyes Jesus Christ hath been evidently set forth and crucified among you. This only what I learn of you, received ye the Spirit by the works of the law or by the hearing of faith. Are you so foolish, having begun in the Spirit, are ye now made perfect by the flesh? Have ye suffered so many things in vain, if it be yet in vain? He therefore that ministereth to you the Spirit and worketh miracles among you, doeth he it by the works of the law or by the hearing of faith? Even as Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness, know ye therefore that they which are of faith, the same are the children of Abraham. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the heathen through faith, preached before the gospel unto Abraham, saying, In thee shall all nations be blessed. So then they which be of faith are blessed with faithful Abraham. For as many as are of the works of the law are under the curse. For it is written, Cursed is everyone that continueth not in all things which are written in the book of the law to do them. But that no man is justified by the law in the sight of God. It is evident, for the just shall live by faith. And the law is not of faith, but the man that doeth them shall live in them. Christ hath redeemed us from the curse of the law, being made a curse for us, for it is written, Cursed is every one that hangeth on a tree. That the blessings of Abraham might come on the Gentiles through Jesus Christ, that we might receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. Brethren, I speak after the manner of men. Though it be but a man's covenant, yet if it be confirmed, no man disannulleth or addeth thereto. Now to Abraham and his seed were the promises made. He saith not, and to seeds as of many, but as of one, and to thy seed, which is Christ. And this I say, that the covenant that was confirmed before of God in Christ, the law, which was 430 years after, cannot disannul that it should, be made, should make the promise of none effect. For if the inheritance be of the law, it is no more of promise, but God gave it to Abraham by promise." Wherefore then serveth the law? It was added because of transgressions, till the seed should come to whom the promise was made, and it was ordained by angels in the hand of a mediator. Now a mediator is not a mediator of one, but God is one. Is the law then against the promises of God? God forbid. For if there had been a law given which could have given life, verily righteousness should have been by the law. 
But the scripture hath concluded all under sin, that the promise by faith of Jesus Christ might be given to them that believe. But before faith came, we were kept under the law, shut up under the faith, which should afterwards be revealed. Wherefore, the law was our schoolmaster to bring us unto Christ, that we might be justified by faith. But after that, faith is come. But after that faith is come, we are no longer under a schoolmaster, for ye are all the children of God by faith in Christ Jesus. For as many of you as have been baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither bond nor free, there is neither male nor female, for ye are all one in Christ Jesus. And if ye be Christ, then are ye Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. Amen. So the concern of chapter 21 in the confession explains to us the liberty which Christ has purchased for the believers. You'll notice that that's the very first line of the confession. The liberty which Christ hath purchased for believers under the gospel consists in their freedom from the guilt of sin, the condemning wrath of God, and the rigor and curse of the law. So liberty is a deliverance from something, but it's also a liberty that's a deliverance from something unto something else. So liberty is not just to be loosed without being uh, gained in something else. So paragraph one is answering this basic question, and that's really the subject this morning is, what is Christian liberty? Now, paragraph one answers that question of Christian liberty, but it consists of two sections in that paragraph. The first section emphasizes what the Christian has been freed from. What are we set free from according to not only Galatians, but what are we set free from according to the confession? But it notes that not only have what we've been set free from, but it notes that the believer has also been freed unto certain privileges. There are privileges, there are benefits that Christian liberty brings unto the believer. And that's what the first section of paragraph one deals with. The second section, and you'll notice if you have a copy of the confession there, um, there really is two sections. Now, I think the copy you may have doesn't break it up into two sections. There's a natural division that comes about midway through where it says, all which were common. Um, That's the beginning of the second section, uh, which it affirms that while believers in every period of redemptive history have been freed by the work of Christ. Uh, Now, that's an important concept to to remind us, that uh, the Old Testament uh, believer was not freed from something else or by something else. They were freed by Jesus Christ. It is the work of Christ that gives man liberty. It is the work of Christ, not only in the New Covenant and the New Testament, but also the Old Testament and Old Covenant believers. But there is somewhat of a greater privilege Uh, a greater benefit that we who are in the New Testament experience that maybe the Old Testament believer did not fully comprehend. Uh, Remember, the Old Testament and the Old Covenant was filled with many shadows, many types, many pictures, and there are things that they just did not understand. Very similar fashion to what we talked about on Wednesday night about the prophets. The prophets penned the scriptures under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, but they didn't always understand what they were writing. The prophets would pen what God through the Spirit said, but they wouldn't know what the meaning of it was until it was fulfilled. 
Well, what Paul is writing much about in Galatians 3, and of course this morning's not a full exposition of uh, that third chapter, but he is talking about certain freedoms and liberties that we now in the New Testament, the New Covenant, understand that maybe the Old Testament believer did not fully comprehend. So what is Christian liberty? I gave us this definition last week. Uh, Quite simply, Christian liberty is the freedom to think and act as we should think and act according to the scriptures. Uh, We kind of all held our breath last week when I said that. Christian liberty is a freedom to think and act as we should think and act. But what's it according to? To the scriptures. We have the liberty to act and to think according to the scriptures. So with that in mind, you have total liberty today. You have complete liberty in Christ to think and act according to the scriptures. So if we act according to the scriptures as our guide, then we are truly understanding Christian liberty. Now, remember, we did learn last week that the writers of the confession understood that there was a real danger of people overreacting to the abuse of authority and that we warned that we can turn liberty into a license to do whatever we want to do. We can say, I am free in Christ. I can do whatever I want to do. I can sin. I can say. I can go. I can be. And because I'm in Christ, I have this total free carte blanche liberty that I can do whatever I want to do. That's not what Christian liberty is. Remember, Christian liberty is based upon what you've been redeemed from and what you have been liberated unto. So notice in the confession that the very first chapter, the first verse of that first paragraph says, the liberty which Christ hath purchased. Now that phrase is important because chapter 21 begins by setting the very firm foundation that it is Christ who purchased liberty. Uh, Again, we could talk about liberty in various aspects of human life. We could talk about liberty as Americans. We could talk about liberty as citizens of this nation. But this liberty that he's talking about, this Christian liberty, is not based upon the freedom that a country experiences because it's been liberated from the oppression of another country, but rather it is a purchased liberty that Christ has purchased for Believers. Now notice, the confession is very careful to say that this liberty was purchased for believers. And how was that purchased? Under the gospel. And then the confession writers went on to tell us what that consists of, what we're free from, which is free from the guilt of sin, free from the condemning wrath of God, and also free from the rigor and curse of the law, just to give us kind of a commencement of those three things. So we would agree today, Christian liberty is a precious gift. It is not something that we think about and take lightly, but it is Christ who secured this through his atoning work on the cross. Uh, This was not given and uh, acquired by any human. It was not acquired by the the strong man. Uh, It's acquired by the purchase that Jesus Christ accomplished on the cross. It is the payment uh, that he purchased with his shed blood. So all that truly are in Christ today, I think we would agree that uh, our liberty in Christ is costly. Uh, None of us, I don't think, would be foolish enough who are in Christ to say, this was free. Uh, Now, it's free to you. Uh, It doesn't cost you anything. But even Peter, writing in 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 18 and 19, he explains to us the cost of this liberty that Christ purchased. For as much as ye know 
that you were not redeemed with corruptible things as silver or gold from your vain conversation received by tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. So the cost was the precious blood of Christ. Our liberty has been purchased by the blood of Christ himself. Now, the context, again, remember of Galatians 3, very quickly, was that they were being what Paul uses the word bewitched. Uh, it's a term of deceivement. It's a term that actually uh, we would understand in sorcery. Um, but his intent was is that you foolish Galatians, you're, you're, being, you're being bewitched by something in which you ought not be, be bewitched by right? Um, that, and the bewitching, notice what it says, is that you are being deceived into not obeying the truth. And yet he reminds them, do you not remember what has been set before you? He says very clearly, do you not remember Jesus Christ evidently so that you can see has been set before you? And it's a question. He's been crucified among you. And then he goes into, of course, part of the bewitching was is that there was a desire on some of those to drive the Galatians back into being saved by the works of the law. And of course, again, he uses the word, and it almost sounds unkind. Because again, in verse 3, he says, are you so foolish? Are you so foolish to allow yourself to be bewitched by these deceptive things that are taking you, and here's the key, and putting you back into bondage, putting you back into chains, putting you back behind bars? Don't be fooled by these things. You have been, been made free by the purchase of the Lord Jesus Christ. So what this confession and this chapter, and especially this first paragraph, is emphasizing is what the believer has been set free from. So paragraph one, and we're not going to go through all these today, but there are 10 realities that are listed in paragraph one alone of what the Christian, the believer, has been freed from. And you'll notice that none of these in the 10 that we'll talk about over the next few weeks say that you are free to do whatever you want to do because you've been saved by grace and you have a license to sin. You won't see a hint of that. You won't see even the remotest thought that Paul had in his mind when he wrote to the Galatians or the confession writers thought that this liberty has anything to do with your rights and what you view as what you should be free to do. Remember, he sets the guideline. You've been freed by the purchase price of Christ. So there are 10 realities. Now, it has been suggested, this is not my outline here, but it's been suggested that the first three items that are listed here, which is primarily the ones we're going to look at this morning, have to do with the guilt of sin. So what we have been freed from is the guilt of sin. The first three deal with that, and that's the three we're going to deal with this morning. The guilt of sin, the condemning wrath of God, and then the third one that's mentioned there, the rigor and curse of the law. Now, this will not be as in-depth and detailed as probably some may want it to be, but it will give us uh, the picture of what's here. So first three deal with the guilt of sin. The next three deal with the power of sin. So you're seeing the pattern. The believer has been freed from the guilt of sin, 
but they've also been freed from the power of sin. And then the final four items have to do with the punishment of sin. Now, sometimes we get this Christian liberty wrong, and we say Christian liberty is being freed from the punishment of sin. Now, is that a true statement? Yes. Is that the totality of the freedom that Christian liberty is? No. See, the beauty of being liberated and the beauty of being freed is not only are you freed from the punishment of sin, which everyone who's a Christian here today says, yes, I'm thankful that I am freed from the punishment of hell, but that's not the total of Christian liberty. You're free from the guilt of sin. Uh, We don't talk enough about the guilt of sin and what that means to be free from the guilt, but also the power of sin. In other words, you've been free to not live yielded to the power of sin any longer. You're not supposed to still live like you once lived. So that's what the idea here is. So we're going to deal with those first three again, really just in overview fashion. So again, we've read that first, that first part of the paragraph. The liberty which Christ hath purchased for the believers on the gospel consists in their freedom from, the first one, is the guilt of sin. So what is guilt? Well, by definition, guilt is the act or state of having done a wrong or committing an offense. It's the act or the state of having done wrong, currently doing wrong, or committing an offense. Now, the Bible declares that man by nature, first of all, by nature, secondly, by choice, secondly, and, by, and thirdly, by action, we're all guilty. So when we read passages like Romans 3.23, for all of sin and come short of the glory of God, that guilt is being, is being declared unto every person. All have sinned. Now, what is sin? They have sinned by nature, by choice, and by action. Sin is a choice. You choose to do wrong. You are not controlled to the point where sin just grabs a hold of you and makes you do it. There is no such thing as the devil making you do anything. You cannot blame your action on someone else. All the way back in the garden, Adam could not blame his action on the serpent. But he could only blame it upon himself. So remember, guilt of sin is not just about, oh, I've done wrong. You've done wrong by nature. It is our nature. We are all fall short of the glory of God. So if they're the confession writers here, and even what Paul's talking about in Galatians 3, he is telling them that Christ has liberated or freed the believer from guilt. It's not that the Christian no longer sins, as some would falsely have you to believe. Uh, No sound Bible teacher is going to teach you or show you and try to use Scripture, unless he's corrupting it and twisting it, that you have now been totally freed that you're never going to sin again. But what you have been delivered from is the guilt of sin. Here's what it means. To be freed from the guilt of sin, again, it's not that the Christian no longer sins, But this is the amazing thing about redemption, is that God no longer regards the believers as having done wrong. 
Now, the next time you sin, think about that for a minute. Because what Jesus Christ has done for you, Christ does not, God the Father does not see you. He sees the righteousness of His Son. The meritorious righteousness of His Son has cleared your guilt. Now, you still are a sinner by nature. You still are a sinner by choice. And you still are a sinner by action. Before this day is done, you will, because of your nature and your choice and action, you will sin before this 24-hour period is over. Guaranteed. But you're freed from the guilt of it. In other words, that sin is no longer now going to be held against you to condemn you and separate you into an eternal place of hellfire. That's just one aspect of it. So here's the question. Did the guilt just disappear? No. Where did the guilt go? The guilt was transferred from you onto Christ. This whole idea that your sins overlooked is not biblical. Your sin was transferred from you onto Christ. Now, did Christ become a sinner? Absolutely not. But in the, 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 the payment of God and the just payment that God the Father required by the Son, Jesus Christ took on upon himself the sin debt. The sacrificial lamb of God, he's referred to. The Old Testament sacrifices of a lamb without blemish and without spot. Peter made mention of that in 1 Peter 1, the verses that we read. With the precious blood of Christ as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. Peter was not just trying to have a cute sermon for us by using the spotless lamb of God. He was referring them back to the Old Testament sacrifices. All those lambs and all the blood that was shed of those lambs in the Old Testament was a picture, it was a type, it was a shadow of the precious blood of Christ that was going to be shed that would first of all free you from the guilt so that when God looked upon his children, he didn't see your guilt anymore. Even though you're deserving of guilt, it's now been transferred from you onto Christ. That's an amazing thing, isn't it? Transferring the wickedness of me onto the spotless Lamb of God. Was it because I was worthy of it? No. Was it because I was deserving of it? Absolutely not. But out of his mercy and grace, he saved us. 2 Corinthians 5.21, one of the most beautiful passages, I think, in all the New Testament. For he hath made him to be sin for us, who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. 2 Corinthians 5.21. Because of what Christ has done on the cross for his people, the Christian, the believer, is no longer viewed as guilty in God's sight. That's part of Christian liberty. You are no longer guilty. Now, when you commit that sin today, you're going to feel guilt. And this does not mean that you're supposed to say, hey, I'm not guilty anymore. I can do, I'm just going to sear my conscience over this. No. But you do have to believe the promises of God. Some people get themselves so bound and wound so tightly about this guilt. They are, they are still hung up on something 
that they did 30 years ago and that somehow they're still under the condemnation of God or they're still being viewed as guilty. You're not being viewed as guilty because your sin was transferred from you onto Christ. Now the problem is we have problems believing that. You ever heard the expression? Of course you have. It's too good to be true. This is too good to be true, but yet it is. That I am no longer viewed as guilty. Now, did I sin? Yes. Did I sin because of my nature? Did I sin because of my choice? Did I sin because of my action? Yes. Is there condemnation for me any longer if I'm in Christ Jesus? Romans 8.1 says no. There is therefore no more condemnation. And that's the second point, the second uh, aspect of this. The condemning wrath of God. Condemnation and wrath are the response of a holy and righteous God to whom? All who are guilty. So the guilty are still subject to the condemning wrath of God. So what what were the confession writers and what is Paul really talking about even in his general epistles? He has a theme that runs through many of his letters about being free from condemnation, being free from the wrath of God, and being free because of the righteousness of Christ. So who today is under the condemnation and the wrath of God? The proper answer is the guilty. Now again, are we guilty in the sense do we commit sin? Yes. But how does God the Father look at us? He looks at us through the Son. The unbeliever cannot claim Christ's blood and righteousness to affect his or her standing. They are still guilty and still subject to the condemning wrath of God. Remember, what's Christian liberty? It's being freed from the guilt of sin and being freed from the condemning wrath of God. To condemn, and we need to keep this in mind, is a legal action. Okay, if a person undergoes a trial in a courtroom, they're found guilty, and they're condemned to die. That condemnation is a legal action. They're condemned. The judge is doing what? Now, whether it's a jury trial or a judge trial, whatever the case is, the judge, based upon the evidence, based upon what's taken place, now is affirming what is true. The person is guilty. What is a guilty person liable for or to? Punishment. Right? The person that's being condemned to death, if he is being uh, rightfully tried, is not condemned to death until his guilt is proven. Now, of course, you can read back into the pages of the legal history of this country and you will be able to find there have been many people who've been falsely accused, found guilty, and sadly, some have actually been executed, condemned, only later to find out there's new evidence and this person was actually innocent. So a guiltless person died. So condemnation is a legal action. As guilty sinners... Before Christ, you were under God's, and this is an important word, just condemnation. In other words, God's condemning of you was right. Everything God does is right. God doesn't do anything wrong. God has never accused someone guilty who was not. He's never condemned anyone. 
All are guilty. So as guilty sinners, we're under God's just condemnation. But how in Christ, however, believers, again, what's the theme here? What have they been set free from? Set free from condemnation. Because, again, not because sin just disappeared, right? But because the Savior, Jesus Christ, bore the guilt and the punishment. So not only did our guilt transfer to him, but the punishment did as well. What was the punishment? Death. Death upon the cross. He died in the place of his people. Okay? Free from the condemning wrath of God. And that's what Paul talks about in Romans 8.1, that there is therefore no more condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. Then he goes and talks about walking in the Spirit. You're no longer walking in the flesh. You're no longer, no longer walking in the flesh because you're no longer an unbeliever. Now, apart from Christ, our sins, our transgressions of God, our transgressions will offend a holy God. So to say, well, that sin doesn't offend God. To say that doesn't provoke anything right in God. That doesn't provoke his wrath. No, all sin is against the holy God. And it's offensive. Now, I know we live in a society, we live in a generation that is trying to say certain sins are not offensive and that God is okay with certain sin. There has never been a sin God is now lightened on because God, who is God, cannot even lighten his own opinion towards sin like man does. That's why we're seeing some atrocities and abominations and sins being accepted in society, but we are not the bar. We don't set what sin is. What sets it? The Holy Scriptures do. You and I don't have a right to determine and say, this is sin and this isn't sin. God's Word does. And if we are guilty of offending apart from Christ's righteousness, then we are under the wrath of God. And by the way, all of us, we're justly, entitled to receive what we should have received, which was hell. You should, I should have been condemned, and I should still be under the wrath of God today, but I'm not because of what Christ has done. Now, the unbeliever can't say that, but the believer can. Remember, this is about the liberty of the believers. John 3.36 says, He that believeth on the Son hath everlasting life, and he that believeth not the Son shall not see life, Look what he said, but the wrath of God abideth on him. He that believes on the Son hath everlasting life. There is no other way to Christ. There is no other way of salvation. It is to believe on the Son. But he that does not believe on the Son, doesn't, not only does he not have everlasting life, which is extremely troubling, but the wrath of God still abides on him. See, it's a fearful thing to not believe. But it's even more fearful to not only not believe on the Son, but to still be under the wrath of God. The condemning wrath of God being upon you ought to be the most frightful thing we've ever heard. And yet, many of our gospel quote-unquote presentations 
We don't even talk about the wrath of God. We don't talk about the condemnation. And sometimes we just kind of walk around telling people, you're going to hell. They don't understand why they're going to hell. They don't even understand the difference between guilt and offense. The reality is, is they are, they are different principles or different concepts. Even Jesus himself would, even the Pharisees, flee from the wrath of God. That condemning wrath. So Jesus Christ, through bearing the sins and the judgment of his people, he has delivered us, freed us, emancipated us, Christian liberty, from the wrath of God. So we've been delivered from the guilt and we've been delivered from the wrath. Thirdly, it says that we have also been free from the rigor and the curse of the law. These three make up that first heading of the guilt of sin. Now the law here being used refers to the principle or the doctrine that simply means this, that man must obey God perfectly in order to have eternal life. Okay, now what have we been delivered from? The rigor and curse of the law. That means in order, if man is left to the law, he's given no other means in which everlasting life, eternal life comes from. Here's all man has to do. All man has to do is perfectly fulfill and obey all of God's commands. That's all you have to do. That's it. Now notice, I didn't just say obey. You have to fulfill them. Jesus Christ, sometimes we mistakenly say this, Jesus Christ came and obeyed the law perfectly. Now, did he? Yes. But don't lose sight of the fact that he also fulfilled the law perfectly. Everything about the law, Jesus Christ was perfectly righteous in. You and I are not, nor can you ever be. You must be not only perfect in obeying it, but you have to fulfill everything God has commanded. Man is not, must be perfect in doing all that God requires. Okay, so not only do you have to obey in doing everything right, but you also have to be perfect in not doing anything that God forbids. Again, we, we like one side of coins and we don't like the other side. We like the fact, all right, all I have to do, as if it's easy, Remember the, the young man that we talked about a couple of weeks ago who said, what one thing am I lacking? What do I need to do? He didn't even understand the reality. It wasn't just about what he could do, but what he couldn't not do as part of obedience and part of fulfillment. So what we see happening here is that if man cannot do that, do all that God requires, and also be perfect in not doing anything God forbids, then he won't be condemned. So at that point, we would have to say this. If that's where it was left, that the rigor and the curse of the law was left in place, what hope would man have who is guilty by nature, guilty by choice, and guilty by action? What hope would he have? None. Could he ever have hope? No, because we have a problem. We have big problems, lots of problems. We have the problem of original sin. We have the problem of being born and conceived in iniquity. 
So before you're even brought into this world, and the moment you are brought into the world, you're already guilty. That's why when we sadly say that precious baby is not guilty, that's not scriptural. Original sin, Adam's fall, plunged all mankind into the realities of guilt. So we have this principle here that the law, again, these are overviews. There's a lot of ways we could go. I understand that. But the law here is being used as a means or a avenue of salvation. If God made it that in order from you, for you to be free from the guilt and from the wrath and the condemning wrath of God, and he left it according to the law, what would the law be? It would be rigorous and it would be a curse. That's why when he writes, Paul writes in, in Galatians 3.10, for as many as are of the works of the law are under the curse, for it is written, cursed is everyone that continueth not in all things which are written in the book of the law to do them. Again, all you have to do is do it all and fulfill it all. That's rigorous. We hear young people tell us that their studies in college or school, are, they're too rigorous. They're too difficult. They're too hard. This word rigor that the confession writers were using actually means harsh. It's the harshness or severity of the matter. The law, if we are left to ourselves to fulfill and obey the law, there isn't anything more harsh or more severe than that. Than to be left to yourself, your salvation depending upon your perfect obedience to the law, that would be the harshest, severe thing you've ever been told. Why? Because you might as well just get up and go home because you can't do it. Now you can try, and people do try. That's why people that say they're saved by works, they really have no idea, maybe they do, what they're saying. Because if you break one, and again, it's not just the Ten Commandments. Some people give a false presentation like that too, and they'll get somebody to admit, I can keep, I can keep ten. They can't, but they'll think they can but the entirety of the law. So the law being understood as this principle of salvation, of course, is rigorous. The idea of strictness or inflexibility. The law gave no means of being flexible. In other words, it wasn't, well, God said, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to loosen the requirement here just a bit. I've been looking down on society, I've been looking down on humanity, and I've been thinking, you know, the temptations are too strong, the world's just, it's gotten out of control. I mean, these poor people are, they're being hit on every side. I'm going to lessen the requirements, so I'm going to hold them to the law, but I'm, I'm going to loosen it up a little bit. God, as a holy, righteous, perfect person of the Godhead, cannot do that. So when these sinful things that mankind and is being introduced into the church wants you to say God is accepting of that, that's a lie. God is not accepting of it any more than he was accepting of it in the Old Testament. How many times have you heard this? I prefer the God of the New Testament as opposed to the God of the Old Testament because the God of the New Testament is a lot more loving. First of all, that's an ignorant statement. It would be similar to what Paul says, O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you into thinking that the God of the old is not the God of the new? 
We wouldn't even fully understand the God of the Old if we didn't see the God of the New Testament. All these things are working together. As fallen sinners, and again, this is not, this is, you're not going to go home and write this probably on your, put it on a magnet on a refrigerator, okay? As fallen sinners, if we're left to ourselves, we are too corrupt, too weak, and too susceptible to temptation to even approach perfect obedience to the law of God. Now, you can go home and write something on your refrigerator, put it on your mirror about, have, a, have an awesome day. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me and take all those verses out of context and say, I'm going to go live my life based upon this. But what if you, what if you put that up there? As a fallen sinner, I am too corrupt, too weak, too susceptible to my own temptations to even approach perfect obedience. See, we, we think just highly enough of ourselves to say, well, I'm pretty close. You're not even in the same zip code. You're not even in the same area code to being close to perfect obedience that's required. That's why you, he says you've been freed from that. If perfect obedience was the only way to Christ, nobody's going to Christ. That kind of severity, that kind of harshness, now we're calling it harsh, but had God done that with his creation, would he have been right in doing so? 100% yes. As the potter, he has the right to do with the clay whatever he wants. Did he have the right just to say, you know what, I'm going to create this whole world of people and billions and billions of people for years and years and years are going to be born, they're going to die. I'm going to condemn them all. Would he be right in condemning them all and subjecting them to the wrath of God? Or would that make him an unfair, unkind God? He would be just in doing it because everything he does is just and right. Ooh, I don't like the sound of that. That's why you ought to rejoice even the more in your salvation today. Because you are not even close to approaching it on your own. The confession writers, remember, they, they are not talking about liberty to do whatever we want. Liberty to re, rebuke authority. This is the strictness, the things that they've been, uh, they've been freed from. The idea that sinners can only please God if they are personally perfect is harsh and severe. Because it's impossible with anybody who has a sinful nature to be perfect. Who has a sin nature? Every one of you. All those over 50? That's all? Or everyone under 50? Everyone from every age? Every child in this room is guilty before Christ saves them. Why do we pray for kids? Why do we pray for the kids of this church show specifically? That's what we're supposed to do. Can we save them? No. Can your son, can your daughter be saved because of your faith? Not even close. Your son, your daughter, no matter how young they are, cannot even come close to approaching a holy God apart from the righteousness of Christ. So in Christ, the believer has been liberated from the rigor and the curse of the law. Christ, Galatians 3.13, Christ hath redeemed us from the curse of the law, being made a curse for us, for it is written, cursed is everyone that hangeth on a tree. Jesus Christ bore the curse that believers deserved. He perfectly obeyed and fulfilled the commands of God. Now Christ, as our mediator, God is pleased with his Son, and those whom he has given to the Son. So if God is pleased with you today, 
He's only pleased with you as he is pleased with Christ. So don't ever get the idea Christ is pleased in me because I am just a great guy. I'm a great gal. I'm a great person. He's only pleased with you because he's pleased with his son. This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. And graciously and undeservingly though, even our most imperfect efforts to try to be pleasing children, we fail miserably. And yet, because we are in Christ, because we've been liberated from the guilt of sin, we can rejoice in that. That truly is just the beginning of what this Christian liberty is. So we've been freed from the guilt of sin. So next week, we'll look at the second part of that, which is the power of sin, how we do not have to live according to the flesh. We do not have to give in at every uh, opportunity to the flesh but we've been delivered from the power of sin in our life. Again, not sinless, but from it reigning over us as our manner of life. Amen. All right.